0: This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at GYCWeb.org.
1: Let's pray and we get started. Father, again, I just thank you for the privilege of being here and I just thank you for the way you led in my life, and I pray that. Your spirit will be here, and whatever anybody needs to take away from this talk, that your spirit will impress upon them the changes, if needed, that need to be made. And as I give this to, you, help me to never forget how you've led. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Even though I was raised in a Jewish home. I was raised in a very secular, very secular Jewish environment. And and it was really in many ways very postmodern. We might have not even called it that you know, that word is thrown around a lot. And it's not necessarily all bad, postmodernism, but I don't wanna hear that. But the but the essence of how I was raised and what I was taught was that There is no absolute truth. There's no overarching truth. You could believe what you want, and that's your truth. And you could believe what you want, and that's yours. And it didn't matter if logically they were in contradiction to each other because there was no sort of overarching, transcendent place where you could stand and ultimately judge I mean, truth was relative, truth was cultural, truth was based on your community. There was, you know, if you heard one of my earlier talks about morality, where morality came from, it was, truth was just a human construct. It wasn't any kind of overarching kind of thing at all. And I bought into that, I believed it, accepted it, was kind of an adamant purveyor of that view. Now, I was always, at the same time, somewhat of a seeker and had an interest in philosophy and was young, and I can remember I was about 21 years old, and I was sitting in a pizza parlor at the University of Florida at Gainesville, and I was sitting in this pizza parlor. I'm eating a pizza and drinking, I'd say, you know, a non-adventist beverage. <laughs> And I'm reading this philosopher, his name is Spinoza. Now, if I can't think of anybody who I absolutely disagree with this, about every single thing the man said, it would be Spinoza now. But at the time, he said something in that book that changed my life right in that pizza parlor, just like that. I mean, anybody looking just would have seen some guy sitting there eating a pizza, but my life changed. And the essence of what he said was in order to live the most perfect life upon the earth, you needed to find out the reason why you were here and then live your life accordingly. Well, for some reason those words sort of just went into my mind, almost like a lobotomy, a prefrontal lobe lobotomy, just went right in, and all those neurons, all those brain cells where I had all of this relativism that I had been, you know, educated on and raised on, accepted. It was almost like they just stuck this shiv in and and just wiped it out. And at that moment, it just hit me. Hey, there was a pizza sitting on the table in front of me. Okay? Now, you could have taken a thousand different people, and they could have had a thousand different explanations or beliefs for how the pizza got there. Maybe they thought the god Marduk created the pizza. Maybe they thought aliens came down and dropped it in a a flying saucer. Maybe they thought it evolved out of the ground. There could have been a thousand different people with a thousand different views on the pizza. Views that they would have died for or views they maybe would have killed for and maybe every single last one of those views were wrong. You could add a million people with a million views, and maybe every view was wrong. But it wouldn't change the fact that there was the pizza sitting on the table. And somewhere out there, somewhere out there in the universe, there was an explanation for the pizza, for how the pizza got there, why it got there. And that explanation for the pizza whatever it was, would have been the truth about the pizza, even if nobody knew what that truth was. It just suddenly hit me there had to have been an explanation for the pizza. And that explanation was the truth about the pizza. It had to exist because the pizza was there. And then at that moment, I just stepped back and suddenly realized. It hit me, hey, I mean, I exist. There's a world here. There's a universe here. And at that moment it hit me just as there had to have been an explanation for the pizza. You know, and whatever that explanation was, that was how the pizza got here. I suddenly realized that somewhere out there there had to be an explanation for the universe, for life, for human existence. I mean, there was something there, and the same way something had to explain the pizza, something had to explain the universe and existence and consciousness. And that explanation, whatever it was, would be the truth, you know, as with the capital T. And it just suddenly hit me at 21. Wow. Truth exists. And I mean, you might think to yourself, oh, you know, it took me 21 to come to that. Mickey Mouse could have told you that. But I'm telling you, the way I was raised, the way I was educated, everything in my life worked against me coming to that conclusion. And I'll never forget, I mean, I just walked out of that pizza parlor. My life changed because it suddenly hit me that truth with a capital T had to exist. And again, it was just such a, a revelation to me to think that because I thought, wow, wow. I mean, that was just, and, and, and for some reason, I can, I can still remember this moment. I remember I was walking through the streets. It was Gainesville, Florida. And it was dark. And I'm walking through the streets of Gainesville. And I felt it. I mean, I felt it so strongly. I, to this, I can still remember I felt this pain in my chest. I wanted it so bad. And I remember thinking to myself, if it were humanly possible, because I realized this absolute certainty that I had at that moment that truth had to exist. I mean, there was just no, there was a universe. Something had to explain it, okay? And that was the truth. I mean, boom, that was just as about as, use a fancy word, apodectic, that was just about as unconvertible of a a, a truth that you could come to. That didn't automatically deductively mean that I could know what that truth was. See, even on my sudden realization, no question that truth had to exist, didn't automatically mean that i could know what it was and i realized that but i can still remember i was 21 walking through the streets and i just felt this burning sensation which almost painful thinking to myself if it were humanly possible because as i said i realized it might not be possible but i thought if i could know this truth i thought to myself i wanted to know it i didn't care where it led me what it cost me, what I had to give up, what I had to suffer. If I could know truth, I wanted to know it no matter what. I can still remember that day, you know, and I wasn't thinking anything religion, just the sudden realization that truth had to exist. It just put this thing in me, I wanted to know it no matter what. And all I know is of all the different paths I could have gone on, all the different ways I could have gone in Gainesville, Florida. I had everything. I went through my Marxist stage for a while, and they had these gurus, and I and did the Eastern thing for a little while, and the philosophical thing, and you know, all this stuff. All the different ways I could have gone, all the different paths I could have gone, and all of them out there, because there's an awful lot. All I know is about three years later, I ended up becoming a Seventh-day Adventist. And that's remarkable for a lot of reasons. A lot, believe me. You don't know the half of it. I'm not even gonna get into the half it. But, uh, but it. But first of all, in my life, I growing up, I knew one Avenus my whole life. I knew one Avenus, and we used to smoke pot together. And he was the only having a week get high, and he'd witnessed me. You no, know, this actually has a happy ending you got to go 25 years later to get to that happy ending, and we probably won't have the time to get into that. But anyway, I only knew one of Grow, As I said, we used to get stoned. And the other thing, too, in my life, there were two kinds of people I used to hate. I used to hate Christians. And I'm not kidding, too. I mean it. I used to hate vegetarians. <laughs> I'm serious. I was so into eating meat, I realized I was so carnivorous. I was so carnivorous that, you know, I would meet vegetarians. I mean, it would be, I would mock them. I, you know, I remember one time I was in Russia and I was eating with some girl. She was a vegetarian and I just started mocking her and almost brought her to tears. And I, all I could do was keep from spitting in her veggies, you know. So, so I was, now my animosity though towards Christianity was a bit deeper seated though than my animosity towards vegetarians, because even though I wasn't raised in a religious home, you know, I was raised very much aware that I was Jewish, very much, you know, Jewish, and I was very bitter, very bitter over all the persecution done in the name of Christ by the church, by professed, you know, church-going people to the Jews through the centuries. I mean, if you've ever studied the history of what you know, the Crusaders would roll you know all the way through Europe, burning Jewish towns and pillaging and you know stealing from the Jews to go to Jerusalem. They rounded up all the Jews, put them in a synagogue, and burn it to the ground. Where well, all these Christians sang hymns to Jesus, you know. And the Holocaust happened in all these called cool Christian lands, you know. By I never heard anybody getting kicked out of the church for murdering the Jews, you know. All this stuff done by by a lot of people going to church and all that. And I was bitter. I was bitter against Christianity. I mean, really, just just hated Christians and hated Jesus and the whole spiel. And there used to be this hellfire and brimstone itinerant preacher named Jed Smock. And Jed used to come to the University of Florida at Gainesville. You know, I've been telling the story for years. I one time got on YouTube and showed my kids here. Here's this guy. You've heard me tell the story since you were tiny kids here's the guy that I used to harass and there's he's still doing it and they're still harassing him on the college campuses well he used to get in a stand out there with his bible and start preaching hell fire and brimstone and there'd be a crowd of students in a circle around him and i was never content to stand with the students i used to get in the center of that circle I'd get on that guy's heels and I'd curse him, curse his Bible, curse his mother. I mean, I could have gone to jail for the things I did to this guy. And if he damned me to hell once, he damned me to hell a thousand times. He used to swear there was no hope for me. And he was charismatic. He'd put his hands on me and speak in tongues and cast demons out of me. And I'd start drooling and writhing. You know, I'd seen the movie The Exorcist, if you'd seen it, you know, that all. You know, and I mean, this went on and on. Eventually, my friends. I did this so often. My friends eventually nicknamed me Heckle. You know, they was Heckle, because I used to wonder why would I was out there harassing this guy, heckling this guy. Well, this went on for a couple of years until ultimately I graduated college. This was the mid-1970s, and mid to late 1970s, and I graduated college, University of Florida at Gainesville. And at that time of my life, I had one goal and one goal alone. I mean, from the time I was very young, I knew I was going to be a novelist or I was going to be nothing, okay? I mean, I sometimes would read two novels a day as a kid. I got writers and editors and novelists in my family. I got on my desk a photograph of my grandfather and a newspaper editor. And my uncle, I mentioned in one of my other talks, was a well-known, just recently died and nominated for the National Book Award and so on. And I got this in my family. And and I started a novel my senior year at college. And before long, this novel consumed me. All I cared about was writing my novel. I mean, I poured my life into this book. I wanted to get college done and just get it out of the way just to get it out of the way. But it didn't really mean anything to me. All that mattered to me was writing my novel. I mean, some of the century's best novelist got thrown out of college and, you know, never graduated college. So, but I just wanted to get it done because all I wanted to do was work on my novel. Well, I graduated college. I worked on it for about a year in college, and then I graduated, and then I went back home, and I grew up in Miami Beach, and that's where I grew up. I still go down and visit Miami. It's funny, I used to travel and People would ask me where I'm from, and I'd say Miami Beach, and it was always a little funny, because i said that's where people go to, not come from. But <laughs> I went back home to Miami Beach, and I was there for a little while, and I decided I wanted to go over to Europe and work on the novel in Europe. Because from the time I was 17, I had somehow I madness in the midst of all this bumming around to graduate college. But from the time I was 17, I went to Europe and North Africa. When I was 19, I bummed on my way around the world was gone for a year, you know, just traveled, and I wanted to work on the novel overseas because part of my novel took place, and, you know, this based on some of the places I was overseas, so I decided I'm going to go over to Europe and work on the novel there. I had a little bit of money left over, so I, I leave, and I fly to England, and I'm hitchhiking around England, just trying to get settled anywhere, and it was kind of weird. It's a long story, but at one point, I actually wound up in a Catholic monastery on an island off the coast of Wales. And I was there about two days, and the monks threw me off the island. Okay, I'm not going to get any more details, but I got kicked off the island. And, uh, and I'm hitchhiking around England, and, and I'm not getting anywhere, and I finally decided, I'm going to go to Sweden because I had lived in Sweden on an earlier time overseas. I spoke the language pretty fluently. I hadn't lost it after a couple of years, so I was going to go to Sweden. So I hitchhike to the English coast, and I catch a boat from England to Holland. Well, the whole time I was hitching in England, it rained on me. And if you get to Holland, I mean, it rains more in Holland than it rains in England. And I'm getting off the boat in Holland, and I'm walking down the gangplank, and it's rainy, and it's cold. And as I'm walking down the gangplank, there's a guy ahead of me who's got a backpack. And on the backpack, he's got a sign that says, Greece. And I suddenly, I just start thinking, you know, of warm beaches and so on, and I'm going to Sweden? So I walk up to the guy and say, Hey, man, are you hitching hitching to Greece? And he says, Yeah. And I said, hey, what a coincidence. So am I. Let's hitchhike to Greece together. I mean, just like that, I changed my mind. And, you know, and 10 minutes later, whatever, I'm on the opposite side of the road I would have been if I was hitchhiking to, to Sweden. Instead, with this guy, we started to hitchhike to Greece together. Well, you know, two guys in the rain with backpacks. You know, we're not getting anywhere. We're not getting anywhere. So I said, to the guy, I said, look, man, let's just split up. Maybe I'll see you in there or whatever. And I went on my own. Okay, and I hitchhiked on my own by myself. I hitchhiked to Athens. And after four long, hard, hot days, and I think I walked through communist Yugoslavia. I mean, it was just long, hard, hot days. I finally got to Athens. I got to Athens. It was late in the, it was late in the afternoon. I was exhausted, dehydrated, and the whole spiel, and... I had a friend who had lived in Athens. I knew him in college and he said, if you ever come, come visit me. So I had the address, so I finally get to this guy's house in the middle of the city, late in the afternoon, and I knock on the door and this little old lady comes out. And I say, Faunus, is Faunus here? That was his name. And she said, Faunus no here, Faunus in Miami. And I mean, it's like all the way there, you know. Well, anyway, I just kind of let out a wail. And she felt sorry for me. She brought me in the room. She brought me in the house, gave me a meal. And an hour later, I'm back out in the streets of Athens. I have no idea where I'm going to go. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I mean, I just, you know, I just wasn't, it wasn't a great situation. And my, my biggest problem is where's I going to sleep? You know, much less what was I going to do for the rest of my life, you know? Sleeping was a problem. Well, finally, I just found a plot of bushes over by a wall. I fine. And I just laid out my sleep right there in the city. And I laid out my sleeping bag, and I went to sleep. And uh, that night I had a dream. Now, it's funny because you've got to understand me. At this time of my life, I was philosophically... I mean a hardcore materialist a hardcore naturalist if you know everything was atoms in the void you know everything in the universe ideally could be explained through atomic you know through atomic theory through physics through chemistry you know boom 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 there was just everything was a purely materialistic view of the world i had no place at all for the supernatural realm anything like that i mean my dreams had everything to do from my genetics to, you know, whether my, you know what I ate for dinner, you know, and, 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 and so on and so forth. I didn't believe in any, any, that was just my worldview. No supernatural worldview at all. Purely materialistic, atheistic worldview. So I didn't take dreams as anything other than just, you know, pure psychology. Well, anyway, what I dreamt, though, I was dreaming that I was sleeping in the bushes, Then I dreamt that I woke up, and then I dreamt that I booked a ticket to Israel and flew to Israel to work on a kibbutz in Israel to work on my novel. Kibbutz are kind of like self-supporting communes almost scattered around the country, and they'll take volunteer workers. Anyway, that was the dream. Well, I woke up, and I crawled out of the sleeping bag, and I thought about the dream. And I thought, hey, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. And I remember, I'll never forget why I remember this detail, that right across the street, there was a travel agency. And why I remember the agency opened at 9 o'clock. Why I remember that detail, I don't know. But anyway, I go over to the travel agency. I book a ticket, and I fly to Israel that day. And two, three days later, I'm on a kibbutz in northern Israel, working on my novel just as I had dreamt in those bushes in Athens. So I'm on this kibbutz, and I loved it. I worked 30 hours a week. The rest of the time was mine, you know, because all I wanted to do was work on my novel. I mean, I just they, they washed your clothes for you. They cooked your meals. You just gave them 30 hours, and then your time was yours. And so I, this was great. I was working on my novel. All that, that's all that mattered to me. Now, I'm going to bring up two details right now and just store these details because they become important later. You're going to wonder why I'm saying that now. First of all, even though I was, you know, writing fiction, I loved, and I still do, I still read a lot of poetry. I love poetry. And I often tell people I learned how to write by reading poetry. And even now, if I really want to try to, if I'm doing something serious with writing, I have to read poetry before just to kind of just ignite, I can't explain it, just ignites something in me that nothing else does. So I was really into reading a lot of poetry and there was one book of poems by this woman named Sylvia Plath. Okay, nothing had impacted me like this woman's book of poems. I mean it was kind of heavy stuff. At one place she went, she went and gave her kids cookies and milk, went down and wrote this poem I still remember the poem. And then she went and stuck her head in an oven and killed herself. And it was, was kind of heavy stuff. okay? But, uh, but, but, but remember the book of poems by Sylvia Plath. The other thing, too, was I was on the kibbutz. I had a blonde Danish girlfriend. And her name was Tina. Okay? So remember those two things, Tina and the book of poetry by Sylvia Plath. Okay, enough of that. Anyway, I'm on the kibbutz, and I'm working on my novel, and not much long after, who should show up but a group of like 12 to 15 fundamentalist Christians. They came to Israel to kind of be like a silent witness to the Jews. You know how these evangelicals are like just big into the Jews and Israel and... Final events are going to happen, you know, that 200 million Chinese are going to attack Israel in the Valley of Armageddon. And the church is raptured and 144,000 Jewish virgins preach Christ, you know, the whole spiel. And, uh, oh, whatever, It's silly as it is to us, these people believe it. And they were there to kind of be silent, try to be a witness to the Jews. Well, I was furious. You know, here I was, I was in the boonies of the only Jewish state since the Bar Kokhba rebellion in like AD 137 and now you got all these Christians here? Well now they were in the minority and I was in the majority. And see how they liked it. And uh, I started harassing them and haranguing them and it really got so out of hand that I didn't get along with the kibbutzniks anyway. I didn't get along with them that great anyway. And eventually it got to the point where the Jews on the kibbutz They were getting ready to throw me off if I didn't leave the people alone. Well, throw me, I mean, the monks threw me out of the monastery. (laughs) Threw me off the island, in fact. And now the Jews were going to kick me off the kibbutz, so I just backed off and left them alone. Because I, you know, I just thought these idiots. I don't, you know, I just try to ignore them as much as I could because really all I wanted to do was work on my novel. Well, anyway, time goes by, and then this other guy shows up, part of the Christian group. Now, if there was anything in my mind that was worse, anything that was worse than these people, anything that was just, ugh, was the, just enough to make you, you, you want to just get violent, if there was anything you hated more than these people who believed in Jesus, it was a Jew who believed in Jesus. And this Jewish guy comes who's part of the Christian group. And he comes as part of the group. Well, this, was a, this, this changed the equation completely. I didn't care anymore. You know, I didn't care. And I laid into this guy, you traitor, and blah, 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 and I, all, the, all the stuff that I've been getting for, you know, 30 years now. But anyway, this guy, though, was different. I mean, first of all, he was very, very intelligent, and, you know, I really, I had a hard time with that. Because I, I I just did, you know, I grew up believing the Bible was nothing but the rannings and ravings of a bunch of flea bitten camel herders. They got tired of lugging these big stone idols around the Judean desert, so they made up some notion of some God they couldn't see, said he was one, Named them Yahweh, some name, nobody knows what it means. And that was the religion of the Bible. It was late Bronze Age camel herder myths. And so I couldn't understand how any educated, intelligent person could take this stuff seriously. And yet this guy was very bright. And we would get into some heavy discussions. Remember, this was all post-pizza power. Okay, I knew that truth had come to exist, okay? So we, I remember even one day we got done, I remember after we got done with the discussion, and I remember going back to my room, and I remember it was the first time in my life I remember looking up at the sky and thinking, hmm, maybe there really is some big mama or some big daddy up there. It was like, you know, the first time that it ever really entered my mind. But anyway, as like most of the stuff I got over it, and so I said all that mattered was working on the book. Well, a number of months went by later, and they were going to have on the p- kibbutz a Purim party, Purim, Esther, the Feast of Lots. And in, even though this kibbutz was a very secular kibbutz, I mean, I think, you know, if, 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 the, if the Jews on Israel weren't busy dealing with the Arabs, they'd murder each other, okay? And they hated these, sec- I mean, if one of those black hats came on the kibbutz, they'd kill him. They would have killed him, okay? That's how much it was. So this was a very secular kibbutz, but um, they still did all like a lot of the traditional things and, and we never worked on Sabbath. We never worked on, on Sabbath. Come to think, I don't think we worked on Sunday either. I, you know, <laughs> try to remember now. No, I think maybe it was just Sabbath we didn't work, but I hadn't thought about it. But anyway, anyway, they had this Purim party and in traditional Judaism, it's a pretty wild party. Well, none of the Christians went to the Purim party. And I'll never forget the next morning I saw this guy, this Jewish believer, this very rational, intelligent guy. And I went up to him and I said, Ephraim, how come you Christians didn't go to the Purim party? And I'll never forget this rational guy, logical guy. He looks me in the face and he says, well, we prayed to the Lord all week and he told us not to go. And that just freaked me out. Okay? Because, you know, to be honest with myself, I knew the guy wasn't a nut job. I mean, I knew him too well to say, oh, you know, you know I, somebody said they found, acid on Je- they found Jesus on acid or something, you know what I mean, or whatever. I, I couldn't say that about this guy. He was too rational, too sane for me to honestly just write him off as a nut job. Now, I didn't really believe Jesus told him not to go to the Purim party. That seemed ridiculous to me. But I just didn't have an answer for this. And I thought I had an answer for everything, and it really bugged me. And I remember going back to my room and almost beating my head against the wall in frustration over this. Because what was I going to do with this? What could I do with him? Because, as I said, I just couldn't write him off as a nut job. And as I said, I was an earnest seeker for truth. Well, anyway, but like all this stuff, I got over it. And, uh, and about a year went by. I'd been working over two years on the novel. And I decided I'm going to go back to Europe and work on the novel in Europe. And I wanted to go back, and I went up to Denmark, and I hitchhiked up to Denmark. And in the middle of Copenhagen, in the middle of Copenhagen, there had been this vast military barracks, and the military had abandoned it. And all these hippies and these squatters moved in there. And I had been there on a previous trip, and that's where I was going to go back and just live there and work on my novel there. And I guess I somehow, I just idealized the place or something, but I get up to this place, and they finally, i heard somebody told me about a year ago they finally had enough and they just tore the thing down about a year ago. But it was just like big, you know, whatever. It was just this big slum in the middle of Copenhagen. I think half the drug addicts and fugitives in Europe were there. I mean, not a day was going by when somebody wasn't dying of a drug overdose or something. I mean, it was... Really, the place was not as I remembered it as. It was really kind of a kind of a depressing place. And I'm in there and I'm thinking, now, what did I want to come up to this place for? But I was there. And I'll give you an example. I'm walking through this courtyard, and I hear this woman screaming. And I look over, and there's some guy beating up some girl. I mean, she's on the ground, and he's stomping her and he's kicking her. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to get involved in this. You know, I just going to stay out of this. But my, I'm walking by and my conscience bothers me. I just can't stand there and do nothing. You know, so I walk over. And as soon as I walk over, the guy stops beating on her and she gets up and runs away. And I thought, oh, I did my good deed for the day, you know. So I just walk away with well, this guy, some strung out little junkie. I'm not looking. And next thing, he turns around and he just sucker punches me, just slams me right in the mouth. So he hits me. Well, you know, I'm not all that big, as you can see. But when I was in college, I used to box. I used to box in college. I was just boxed on a bag. I got in a ring one time and got my head handed to me in the ring because I realized they hit back. The bag never hit back, you know. So I just stuck with the bag. Well, but I mean, I I could box, okay. Well, this strung out little jerk punches me in the mouth. Well, you know, it was just reflexes. I didn't even give it a second thought. I just turned around and boom, boom, boom laid him out, you know. Just laid him out. He was flat out. But, but what happened was, when he hit me in the mouth, he hit my head and my glasses went flying off. I mean, my eyesight so bad, they won't even do Lasik on me. Okay, they won't do Lasik. And I can't see, couldn't see anything. And I couldn't find my glasses. And I don't want to be groping in the mud where the strung out little junkie, you know, goes after me. So I grab him by his head and I'm going, find my glasses, find my glasses. Okay. So I get my glasses, I put my glasses on, and then I say to this guy, I say, look, man, I'm not interested in your marriage problems. You know, go get counseling or whatever it does. not I just take them and with all my force. I just slam them into the ground. Well, that was a problem because I got a weak knee and a weak back. I'm an old skydiver and just, it's not like it was today with these big old nice canopies. I mean, I jumped these old Whatever it was, I had a weak knee and a weak back, and the minute I threw him on the ground, both my knee and my back gave out. And the guy gets up and says, I'm gonna kill you, man, and he pulls out a knife. Well, boxing or no boxing, but if someone pulls out a knife, you just run, okay? And my knee and my back didn't need me running, and it was like at a Keystone cop, so I'm running down the street going, help, police, help, and this guy was chasing me with the knife. But the bottom line, they end up, the cops come out of the blue, take us down to the station, And an hour later, the cop says, well, we got to let him go because according to Danish law, the knife is not um, long enough to make an arrest. Okay, so the bottom line is I'm back out on the streets. (laughs) My knee's killing me. My back's killing me. I got a big fat lip from where he punched me. And this place, and and then the whole time I'm looking over my shoulder because I'm still scared to death of this guy that he's going to come up behind me with that knife and just put it in my back because he was in Christiania. So the bottom, the bottom line of all this, things aren't going particularly well for me, okay? <laughs> and then to top it off, I've got a friend that lived in another part of town. Very swank, very nice apartment. This guy was deep in the occult, deep into spiritualism. Now, I didn't know anything about that stuff, but all I knew was this guy's apartment, it was creepy. Everything, that whole place was creepy. He was creepy. Everything was creepy in there. And he would talk about these supernatural things in there. But this guy used to get in these drunken stupors. And he would sit in a chair for days. I mean, he would urinate in his pants. I mean, he would never get up. And he'd sit there. And he'd stomp the ground. And he would let out these tremendous shrieks, these tremendous howls. I still get the the will, he's thinking about it, he'd just sit there, and he'd shriek, and he'd howl, and it was like an animal, and I'm looking at this guy, and this poor guy, he was so messed up, I didn't know what to do for this guy, I mean, I, what are you doing, I mean, I didn't even know where to begin, and at one point, this is kind of funny, too, it's kind of pathetic, but it's kind of funny, too. at one point, I don't know, I said, this guy needed something, so I looked at this guy, and I, of all people, I said, hey, man, did you ever think about Jesus? You know, he needed something. And I'll never forget. This is the point. When I said, the, as soon as I said the name Jesus, I still never forget this. He was sitting there stomping. And as soon as I said the name Jesus, he stops. He looks up at me with one eye. Don't, I don't get to, this one eye thing was all. He kind of looks at me with one eye. And he says to me, 20 years ago, I asked for Jesus. Instead, I got the devil. Okay, well, you know, I didn't know squat. To me, Jesus, Buddha, Moses, Santa Claus, the good tooth fairy, the devil. You know, it was, that was all the same to me then. It was all in the same class to me. But that so freaked me out. That was so creepy. I just fled that apartment and said, I just got to get out of here. And I left Copenhagen. And I traveled enough to know you can't get away from yourself. You can't get away by traveling. But I, at that point, said, I just got to get out of here. And I went to Paris. And I get to Paris. And I mean, just this heaviness just came over me from that guy's apartment. And I was just so down. And I, and I get to, you know, my knee and my back are still hurting. And I'm in Paris, and I don't know anybody. And I'm running out of money. And I'm in this city. And, and I just got my own personal issues, like anyone you know, I'm dealing with. And the point is things are just going down, down, down. And it was the only time in my life where I said, okay, here's your situation. You're in a tough situation. You can do A, or you can do B, or you can kill yourself. Only time in my life I ever thought about suicide. And I can remember even there was the Eiffel Tower. And I remember the thought entered my mind. Just jump off. I mean, I remember, I just think I can jump off the Eiffel Tower. Well, as soon as I had that thought, I still remember it was almost like, boop, this other thought kind of came in and knocked that one thought out. And that thought was, hang on, because maybe this Jesus stuff is true. And then as soon as I had that thought, I cursed myself. I said, look at you. Your whole life you always viewed religious people as weak people. Oh, they couldn't handle the hard knocks of life and life was hard. So they had their little invisible bunny rabbit they said their prayers to before they went to bed at night and they had their gods at the you know, and on and on. And I just I just looked at it with absolute utter disdain. I thought it was the cheapest, most irrational, stupidest crutch. You know, anybody could have, and, and, and I just, I always hate it. And I said, and now, for the first time in your miserable 23 years, you feel like you can't handle it, and you're going to reach out to some make-believe deity, some nonsense spaghetti monster or something, to, you know, a belief, to make you feel better. And I said, no way. I remember I just cursed myself and said, what are you doing? I said, I'd rather jump off that Eiffel Tower and be squashed dead like a grape rather than live a lie, no matter how good the lie made me feel. In other words, I was too honest a seeker for truth to sit there and believe some nonsense fairy tale just because it made me, I mean, I would rather have been dead. And I remember it was one of those moments where I don't know whether I shook a fist up in the sky or not, but I can remember the moment so clear. I remember stopping and thinking, okay, God, if you exist, if you're there, you're going to have to reveal yourself to me. You're going to have to show me that you're there. You're going to have to give me a sign. You're going to have to do something. Otherwise, I will never believe ever. And with that, I left Paris. And I managed to get myself back to Israel. And pretty much all that heaviness, all that depression, everything that followed me from that guy's apartment, everything just left me. And I was back to my good old obnoxious self, which probably explains why I went back to my old kibbutz. And they wouldn't let me back on the kibbutz. They wouldn't let me back on, and, uh, and I just wanted to get back, so I said, fine, I'm going to go to another kibbutz, because I just wanted to get back on my novel, because I'd kind of been putzing around in Europe, and I wasn't really working on the novel, because all that mattered, that book controlled my life. Nothing mattered to me other than my novel, and I remember telling one other, that Jewish guy about what happened in Paris, and he said, you asked, and I said, I asked, I said, well, if you ask, God will reveal himself to you. Well, fine. Say whatever. Anyway, I left the kibbutz and I went to the main office in Tel Aviv to get assigned to another one. And I walk in the office and there's a woman at the desk and then there's a guy ahead of me who was there to get assigned to a kibbutz. So I'm sitting there in the office and I look on the desk and there's a sheet of paper that has my name, Clifford Goldstein. And I said to the woman, excuse me, I interrupted her. How did you know I was coming? And I pointed to the sheet of paper. She says, I don't know, who are you? And I said, Clifford Goldstein. Well, the guy who was sitting in front of me, he jumps up and says, no, that's mine. My name is Clifford Goldstein. And he was there to get assigned to a kibbutz. He just says, I was there. Now, I mean, Clifford Goldstein's not the most common name in the world. But then again, folks, well, look where I was. I mean, I was in Tel Aviv, for crying out loud, OK? <laughs> And I just, by the way, I said, hey, Cliff, where are you from? And he said, Miami Beach. <laughs> and it was funny because when I was a kid, I told my mother the story later, and she talked about how all these, when I was a little kid, these pediatrician bills used to come to the house for Clifford Goldstein for doctor's appointments that weren't my doctor's appointments. So he, we had the same pediatrician, and his bills were coming to our house. You know, this was years earlier. Well, anyway, he was there to get assigned to a kibbutz, and I said, hey, have I got the kibbutz for you? <laughs> I said, you go to my old kibbutz and you tell him that your name is Clifford Goldstein and you're from Miami Beach and you watch what happens, okay? Well, anyway, he goes to the kibbutz. He goes to the kibbutz. Well, I get assigned to another kibbutz, but at that time, I'm just not getting my act together and I'm, I'm going to go back to the States. And uh, on the way back, I just stopped. I'm going to stop at the kibbutz for a final visit. So I go back for a visit, and of all, the old, of all the rooms he could have been in, Clifford Goldstein was in the same room that I had been in when I had been on the kibbutz and left months earlier. And there were two beds in the room, and he was in the same bed that I was in when I had been on the kibbutz. So I'm sitting in the room, and I'm just chatting with him. And we laughed, you know, same name, same city, kibbutz, you know, bed and whatever. It was a little bizarre, but I didn't really get all that excised about it until I looked up on the bookshelf over the bed, just had a slab over the bed, and I saw a whole bunch of my old books on the bookshelf. You know, books that I had left when I went to Denmark, because, you know, I was hitchhiking. I mean, I'm not going to take my library with me. I usually carried one book, and you, a lot of times on the road, you'd meet somebody, and you'd exchange books or whatever. And I see a whole bunch of my old books on the bookshelf. And I said, hey, Cliff, you like my books? And he says, what are you talking about? He said, those are all my books. And at that point, I said, no way, and I'll never forget, I stood up and I went, write for which book? Sylvia Plath, The Book of Poetry by Sylvia Plath. Same author, same title, same edition, same everything. But it wasn't my book, it was his book. And I'm looking at this thing, because I'm thinking, I told later people on the people on the kibbutz this story. Remember, I used, to, I used to make people sit down and listen to me read them poems out of this book, whether they cared about it or not. I just wanted to read them Sylvia Plath poetry. I mean, that's how much it affected me. And there was this book on the shelf. And then I looked at him, and for some reason I said, Cliff, are you a writer? And he says, yes, I'm a writer, and I've come to Israel to write. Then. it gets we're not done yet (laughs) then as we're talking and I'm just starting to freak out about this girl walks in the room I've never seen her before Says girlfriend she's blonde she's from Denmark and he says Cliff you'll never guess what her name is her name was Tina okay alright now what do you do with this okay what do you do with this Okay, I mean, I remember I went down, you know, people on the puts were freaked out. The Christians were very cool about it. And this guy said, Cliff, you said to me two weeks earlier, you were asking for God. You were asking God for signs. He says, man, what more do you want? He said, the Lord's calling you by name. Okay, now when he says that to me, you know, he said that to me, I'll never forget. You know, again, this is one of these, you really had to be there. You had to be me, okay? And he said that to me, and I remember stepping outside. And we're just gonna run about five minutes over, but too bad, you know. I usually, I can use the excuse. I mean, I just told a story in Australia about three weeks ago, and I said, well, too bad, if I'm flying 7,000 miles, you're gonna sit here and listen to me finish the story. I can't use it now, because I live 30 minutes from here, so. so uh. But anyway oh yeah, where was, oh yeah. I'm sitting outside and I'm thinking about this. And I realize, I just know this can't be a coincidence, okay? And if it's not a coincidence, and it was like it was the first time in my life I kind of looked up in the sky with a little bit of fear and trembling. Because <laughs> you know, at, that, at that moment I just knew I just knew that there just had to be something else because I knew this couldn't be a coincidence. Well, anyway, and here's where it gets a little even more bizarre. The next day, all those Christians whom I harangued and harassed, they took me down to the Jordan River, which is like 100 yards from the kibbutz, and they baptized me in the Jordan River, and they give me a Bible, and I fly, and I get back on a plane, and I fly back to the States. Now, the only problem was I was really no more born again than a corpse, okay? It was heavy meeting my double like that, and I knew that made me know there had to be something else out there, okay? There had to be something else. But I went back to Gainesville, Florida, and all that I cared about was working on my novel. Nothing else mattered. I just got back into my novel, and they had given me a Bible to read, and I would try reading the Bible, but I just—if you're not, you know—I mean, I just couldn't. Uh, I couldn't get past the, t- the talking snake spiel, you know. What I mean? You know, it was just like nothing clicked, nothing in my life changed. I just, as I said, I knew there was something else out there, but nothing. I went right back to the way I was before, I was just working on my novel. Now I want to backtrack a little and then come right back to Gainesville. When I was in Israel, I lay down one afternoon. This was when I left the guy in Copenhagen and left Copenhagen. I lay down one afternoon to take a nap. And I felt this strange little tingling in my toes. And it rolled up. And I felt this loud pounding in my head. And I had this sensation I was being shot through a wind tunnel. And it was loud and it was very uncomfortable. And I sat up. I thought, what in the world is this? When I got back to the States, it happened again and again always when I would lay down and take a nap and just close my eyes and this just this, this Sensation I felt this tingling and this come would with center in my head and it was just like You know just the sensation of a wind, and I sit up and I thought to myself The next time this happens Cliff don't fight it don't fight it. So I lay down. I know it's gonna happen because I knew it was happening all the time now. And I lay down, and this tingling in my toes, and and was very frightening. And I ended up pounding in my head, and I said, don't fight it, don't fight it, go, go, go with it. And the next thing I knew, zoosh, I felt myself go fly right out of my body. And I remember going through the ceiling, and then I remember feeling myself hovering in the air in this gray kind of crackly diaphanous mist outside the second story apartment of a couple of friends of mine who were into a guru and were trying to get me into this guru okay and the next thing you know boom i'm back now please understand i'm a hardcore seventh day adventist today today i understand today per- well perfectly mind body dualism or oh, you got to be kidding me i don't have the vaguest idea how that works, okay? Perfectly, I, haven't, I have no idea how that works. But I understand there's no such thing as a separate, conscious, immortal soul. Please, I understand that now. I mean, I'd burn at the stake over that one, okay? No question. I know that now. I mean, that's, you know, fundamental now. But I knew nothing about that then. And there wasn't anything anybody could have said that would have convinced me that that wasn't my soul leaving my body, and after that experience, I thought, wow, this occult stuff, this is heavy, I mean, this is real, as I said, I had a Bible, but I didn't have any born-again experience, and nothing changed in my life, I thought, maybe the occult, maybe spiritualism is where the truth is that I've been, that I was seeking, so I decided, I'm going to go to the library, and I'm going to get a book on the occult. So I go over to the library at the University of Florida, back in Gainesville. And I wasn't in school then. I just came back to Gainesville to work on my novel. And I wasn't in school then. And on the way over, I just happened to stop at a health food store. Okay? I was looking for a job. I mean, I was desperate enough to where I would have worked with vegetarians if I had to. Okay? And this guy came out, and we started talking. I said to him something about what I was into. He said, what? And he pulls me in the health food store and locks the door. Then I start telling about my occult experiences, and he starts to try to—he starts warning me about the devil and so on. Well, you know, to talk to me about the devil, you know, he might as well talk to me about Santa Claus. And he says, but he says, here, read this book, and he hands me a book, and I go over to the library, and I go over and I get a book on the occult, on spiritualism, and I sit down. I couldn't check the book out. So I sat there in the library and I read the first chapter in the book and I practiced the first technique. And I don't think in 30 years of telling the story, I I think the only person I've ever told us what the technique was was to my wife. I haven't told it to anyone else. And I practiced the first technique and then I went and hid the book somewhere so I can come back the next day and read more. But the bottom line is I'm walking through the library and literally for the first time in my life I got a book on the occult I got a book on spiritualism in one hand that I'm getting into. Okay, because now I knew this stuff was real. I got that book literally in one hand and literally in my other hand for the first time in my life. First time in my life, I got the book that the guy handed me in the health food store. Which book do you think it was? What's the only book? Cult book in one hand. What's the other one it could be? Great controversy. Okay, but I mean, I'm telling you, I had... I had no idea. I mean, everything was just kind of just coming right down, you know, right down to the wire. But I'm telling you, I was totally oblivious. Well, about two days later, I'm walking back to my room in Gainesville. Sun is setting. I'm going back to work on my novel. It had been going better than it had gone in the two and a half years since I worked I mean, nothing else mattered than my book, my, my novel. And, you know, at that point, they asked me, did I believe in God, did I believe in Jesus? I said, well, I know there's something else out there. I know all that and so on and, you know, the occult stuff, but nothing changed. You know, my life was my book. I come back to the room. I sit down at my desk. had a little portable typewriter, manual typewriter. It's important detail. This is 1979. And I sit down at my desk to work on my novel, put a sheet of paper in my novel, in the typewriter, crank it up, put my finger on the keys, and at that moment, as real as anything that ever happened to me, the presence of the Lord Jesus came into the room. I knew exactly who he was, and I knew exactly what he wanted. In the instant I knew who he was and what he wanted, he said, "If." you want me tonight, burn your novel. Just like that. I mean, I knew who he was, what he wanted. Burn your novel. He showed me at that instant. I mean, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I mean, the only thing I know about the Bible was a Hal Lindsey book I read. But in that instant, he showed me that novel was my God, and you shall have no other gods before me. He said, if you want me tonight, burn the novel. And I'm telling you, the most important word in that whole thing is the if is the if, because you know, I read a lot of philosophy, and I've read a lot of things about free will, okay? And I couldn't prove to you free will philosophically You know, if my life depended on it from a purely philosophical standpoint. I believe it because my religion makes no sense without it. But the whole time this is going on, I, realize, this, I I'm, I'm realize that I don't have to do this. I mean, I realize that it was my choice. And God says, if you want me tonight, Burn the novel. And I said, God, please, let me, just give my, let me just finish this book, and then I'll give my life to you. If, if you want me tonight, burn the novel. I said, God, please, let me rewrite it all to your glory. If you want me, burn the novel. And I said, please, can't I just put this away, and we deal with it another time? Burn the book. Well, I remember I just burst into tears. I jumped up and I ran out of the room. And I was walking through the streets of Gainesville at night. The same streets that I walked out of that pizza parlor like three years earlier, two years earlier, saying I wanted to know truth no matter the cost. Okay, no matter, I said I wanted to know it no matter the cost. And now, suddenly, two, three years later, I'm confronted with the cost and it was too much. I mean, I could have slit my throat easier than burning the book. I had nothing. My friends were getting degrees and this and then that and going on, and I poured everything into the book. I mean, I mean, I was living. I barely had a dime to my name. I didn't care. All that mattered was my work, my art, you know, the novel. Nothing else mattered to me. And now I had to burn it. I had nothing else. And that was why it had to go, because it was my God. And I'm going through those streets, and I'm wrestling back and forth. And there's just no way. And finally, finally I remember, I stopped underneath the street lamp. And why I always remember this one detail, I remember these little bugs were just flying around the lamp and casting these shadows on the ground. And I stopped underneath the street lamp. I don't know how long, a lot of wrestling, a lot of thinking in my mind. And finally, at one point I said, okay, God, I want you, I want truth more than I want this book but you're going to have to burn it for me because I can't burn it myself. Now, the moment I made that choice, it was, you know, that choice. You know, God might not force, but I did sort of feel this, like, grip (laughs) around my neck, okay? But it was amazing. The moment I made that choice, it was, again, this was the most amazing experience of my life. I made that choice, and then instantly, Everything just lifted off me. Everything, the anguish, the turmoil. I had no idea I was a sinner. I had no concept of sin. Atonement, I knew nothing about the gospel. I told, and I told you the only thing I knew about Seventh-day Adventism. I knew nothing about anything. Of all, all I knew was that I had met God, met Jesus, and I had to burn that novel, Knowing nothing about, no idea what I was getting into, anything. I just went back to my room. And, again, there was total peace, not an ounce of doubt, question, whatever. I went back to my room, and I had this little two-burner hot plate that my mother had given me. And I picked up that manuscript two and a half years. i got to just a few more minutes. And I picked up that manuscript, the bottom line, two and a half years of my life and laid it on the hot plate, turned the switch, and burned the novel. And that was the night I became a born again. And I can honestly say I burned that novel in 1979 and not one time have I ever been sorry that I burned the novel. It's what had to go in order for me to become a believer. And I want to wrap this up real quick because I'm running a little bit late here. Anyway, I burned the novel. And you know, those are, one of the first thing I want to do with those occult experiences. Ever read these stories about these people who die? Well, everybody's read them near-death experiences, and then they come back to life and they talk about floating around this mist and meeting their dead and on and on and on. That was the exact experience I was having, yet I wasn't anywhere near dead. I'm convinced it was somehow from that experience with that guy in the occult in Copenhagen. The devil got an open door on me. You know, the Satan saw that I was getting interested in spiritual things. And he'd give me something the devil's religious. Okay, And I'm convinced it's all supernatural hallucinations. I mean, these people with these near-death experiences, they meet their dead relatives. So you got to know what's going on there. But it was so deceptive. Satan so hid himself. But the moment I gave my heart to him that night, burned that novel, those occult experiences never came back. Because what greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? You know? Then, that preacher I used to harass... He came back, and I got right next to him. He thought, oh, no, here we go again. Only this time I witnessed with him. And many of them remembered me as heckle. And then the last thing, too, a couple, well, I want to finish this up. I was, a couple months went by, and I'm standing in front of the health food store. And I'm getting ready to cross the street. And I see this car. And this car comes, and I think, all right, do I want to cross or do I want to wait? I said, I'll wait. So I stop, and this car drives by. Who do you think's in the car? Clifford Goldstein. Last time I saw him was in the Galilee. But anyway, here's the point. People, when I burned that book that night, I realized I might not ever write again. I died to it. I was dead to it. I had nothing else. I mean, I was cool with it. And I was just dead. And then, boom, I went on, and I started studying with the, the people in the health store were obviously Adventists. And about two years went by. And I never wrote and didn't really do any writing. Then one day, the door opened for me to write an article. You'll never guess what the article was on. Vegetarianism. <laughs> and the point is, I wrote that article and I never stopped writing since then. And I think that's the moral of the story. I've got to, it looks like there's a crowd ready for the next meeting, so I had a... Russia. I People got here late, so I started late for some of you. Let me finish with prayer, okay? Because again, don't miss the moral of the story. There was nothing inherently evil about the book. It was my relationship to it. Something to think about. Let's pray. Father, again, I just thank you for the way you worked in my life. And Lord, I don't know most of the people here, and I don't know their hearts, but I just pray, Heavenly Father, if there's somebody here with something that they're clinging to, if there's somebody here with a book, no matter what it is, it might not in and of itself be evil, but if it's something that means more to them than you, then Lord, you know that they've got to get rid of it. And Lord, you do not force, but I pray the same way you came to me that night over 30 years ago, you'll come to anybody here and show them no matter what it is, if they're clinging to something, that they will surrender it to you and give it to you and then give themselves to you fully and completely. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
0: This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, Or, if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit GYCweb.org or email info at GYCweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it, and keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.